came to the place where we were sick and tired of people being Christians for a while and still not knowing their way around the Bible. So we decided to do something about it. We launched on a journey of studying our way through the Bible, one book each Sunday. And I am pleased to announce that as of this morning, we are now at the midway point. Yes, we've done 33 books out of 66 books in the Bible. We are at the midway point. And as we came to this point this morning, I thought to myself, so what? Why are we doing this? Why are we studying our way through the Bible? Is it just to kick biblical illiteracy? Is it just so that we can find our way around the Bible and know a little bit more? If that's all it is, shame on us. You see, the Bible is not just a book of knowledge. It's not just something that we can learn and memorize or turn to in rough times or put on the nightstand kind of a good luck charm or it's not just something to be placed on a coffee table as an attractive coffee table book that never gets open. The Bible is a lot of things. But this morning as we come to this book of Hebrews, in our study, the 33rd book in our sequence of 10 months, we come to this book. This book points us to the purpose of the entire Bible. There are really two books in the Bible that give somewhat of a satellite view. We've all logged on Google Earth and you see it from a high distance and you see the whole earth. And the book of Hebrews gives us that kind of an overview of the entire Bible. It's a great book to hit at the midway point. But it, like Google Earth, from that satellite, you can keep ratcheting in and see your town and the street you live on. You can even see, you know, the color of your car and, and whether you mowed the lawn that day. I mean, you, you can get down to the finest detail. So in the book of Hebrews, it gives us an overview, but it's also, it tunes it right in so that we can see ourselves for who we are in the book of Hebrews. But the Bible is not just given to be a book in which we see ourselves. And the book of Hebrews doesn't just show us ourselves. But it builds chapter after chapter after chapter. It builds to five words. In chapter 12, verse 2. And those five words that summarize not only the message of the book of Hebrews, but the message of the entire Bible. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Lock on to Jesus. Don't you dare come to the point where you think you know it all. If you spent 
every hour of every day for your entire lifetime and for eternity, you would still only be scratching the surface looking at Jesus. There is so much more to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Take a good, long, hard look at Jesus. Don't take your eyes off of Jesus. Now, when we look at the entire Bible, it is amazing how many fix-your-eyes-on-Jesus stories there are. Abraham. When Abraham was called, God promised him immediately, I will make of you a great nation. He was 100 years old and he still didn't even have one child. He has a miracle child. Then God asks him to take that child. He's now probably 117 years old. But God comes to him, Genesis 22, and asks Abraham to take that child, his only child, Isaac, whom he loves, and go out and sacrifice him as an offering to the Lord. And it says in Hebrews chapter 11, the reason he obeyed God is because he fixed his eyes on Jesus, who was able to even raise the dead if necessary. Then we come to Moses. Moses was the prince of Egypt. He was raised in Pharaoh's household. He would have been a ruler over a vast domain. But God calls Moses to leave the pleasures and influence of Egypt and to align himself with the Hebrew people who were slaves in the country. And the, it says in Hebrews chapter 11 that Moses did that because he fixed his eyes on Jesus and considered following Christ of greater value than all the, the dainties of Egypt. Then we come to the book of Numbers. And the whole children of Israel now are being led by Moses through the wilderness. They went through a valley where it was filled with poisonous snakes. Many of them were being bitten by snakes. And God told Moses, create an, an, a, an image of a brass serpent. Put it on a real high flagpole, high enough that several would need to hold it, but lift it up so that any of the two million Hebrews walking through the wilderness, if they were bitten by a snake or came near one, if they looked not at the snake, but if they looked at that image, the snakes won't bother them. And when Jesus came, Jesus said, as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up. And what he was saying is, I was that one lifted up for all of Israel. What kept the Israelites from the poisonous snakes walking through the wilderness, it was because they fixed their eyes on Jesus. Then we come to the New Testament, and there was that incredible moment when the disciples are sailing along the Sea of Galilee in a boat. I was in a boat on the Sea of Galilee this past summer, and I remembered this story, and I wanted, like anything, to jump out and see if it worked. 
But Jesus comes walking to them. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus isn't. But he comes walking up to them and they say, oh, it's a ghost. No, it's not. It's really me. Get out of the the boat, Peter. Come on and come to me on the water. And Peter stands out on the water and he's doing fine. Other than Jesus, he's the first guy to walk on water. Now, I did from the, 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 the coastline of the Sea of Galilee, I went swimming twice. And I, I, I stood there once before I walked in. I said, no, Lord, this would be incredible. And I, I don't know why you would want to do such a thing, but, but would you let me walk on water? And I went in up to my waist, and I went in all the way. I mean, it, it, it didn't do anything for me. But <clears throat> it was the same water. That's the point. I said, I want to identify with every part of what I can. I want to get all I can out of this trip to the Holy Lands. And I mean, I just wanted to identify. And, and I, I'm being a little silly, but the point is, is that they really did. I didn't, but Jesus did and Peter did. And when you read that story captured in the Gospels, the amazing part of the story is that Peter was fine as long as he fixed his eyes on Jesus. And when Peter looked down at his feet, when he looked at the water, when he looked at the waves, he didn't do so good. And I thought about us. And I wonder how many of us today, we need to hear with the snakes or the waves that are washing around us, that we need to hear today, fix your eyes on Jesus. Do not waver in your faith. And the way Jesus is described there, who is He? He's the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who called us to faith in the first place, but the one who will carry us on through In the building of our faith. And if our eyes are on Jesus. He's the one who will build our faith. It's not up to us to build our faith. This is why the entire Bible is filled with so many fix your eyes on Jesus verses. Many of our favorite verses in the whole Bible are fix your eyes on Jesus. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps as they fix your eyes on Jesus verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength is a fix your eyes on Jesus verse. I want to know Him and the fellowship of His sufferings, to be conformed with Him in His death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's a fix your eyes on Jesus verse. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all other things will be added to you. That's a fix your eyes on Jesus verse. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple, is a seek is to fix your eyes on Jesus verse. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul longs for you, O God. And then Psalm 25:15. My eyes are ever on the Lord, for only He will pluck my feet out of the net. 
When my feet get in the net, if I look at my feet or I look at the net, that's not going to help me. But when my feet are in the net, if I look to Him, He will help me. My eyes are on the Lord, for only He will pluck my feet out of the net. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Right now, many of us are going through trials. Some work-related. Some need employment. Some are short on money. Some are facing family problems. Some have experienced recently moral failure. Fix your eyes on Jesus. You take your eyes off of the Lord, you're going your own way. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When Jesus was here, He said, If you remain in Me and My words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. The Jews to whom Hebrews was originally written had put their faith in Jesus. But trials came. Many Jews were killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And many Jews began to back away. They began to lean out. They realized that if they were going to survive, they needed to hunker down. And many of them thought, who needs Jesus? We have Judaism. What good is Jesus if He's only going to get us killed? And they were leaning out and beginning to retreat because of the trials they were faced with. And the message of the book of Hebrews, fix your eyes on Jesus. Laced through the book are warnings. Some of the stiffest warnings anywhere in the Bible are in the book of Hebrews. Every warning is a fix your eyes on Jesus warning. It's really a warning. Do not leave Jesus. Don't lose your focus. The warning against delaying coming to Christ. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. How shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? It's a fix your eyes on Jesus warning. Chapter 3, verse 7 is a warning against disbelief. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. It's a fix your eyes on Jesus warning. Also in chapter 4, a warning against deadness. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Chapter 6, we come to the warning against departure. It's impossible if they fall away to be brought Back to repentance. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Chapter 10, the warning against drifting. Uh, let us not stop meeting together, as some of us are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as the day approaches. The warning against despising discipline. Chapter 12, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when He rebukes you. The warning against debauchery. Further into chapter 12, see to it that none of you is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. And finally, a warning against disobedience. We come to the end of chapter 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? 
Fix your eyes on Jesus. Now, who is this Jesus? Listen to me carefully. I'm going to give you three options, and they're all wrong. If when you fix your eyes on Jesus, what comes to your mind, if you close your eyes and and you hear, fix your eyes on Jesus, if one of these three images comes to mind, you've got the wrong guy. If the image that comes to your mind is a little baby in the manger, that's not Jesus, not today. He's not a baby in the manger. Number two, the milk toast, effeminate oil painting. It's not Jesus. He's anything but effeminate. Third picture, a mangled body hanging on a cross. That's not Jesus, not today. Jesus is not mangled and He is not hanging on a cross. Not today. He's not a baby in the manger. He's not a weak, weakling, milk toast. And He's not a mangled body. Well, who is He? Who is this Jesus? Woven through this book brilliantly is perhaps the clearest view of who He is today outside of the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who was appointed heir of all things. Did you hear that? Heir of all things. Jesus today is inheriting as the rightful Son over the entire universe. He's inheriting all things. That means anything that is concerning you, He has dominion over. When it says He is heir of all things, this is the picture of the triumphant Christ who's been raised from the dead before He ascended into heaven, who said to His disciples, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Me. He's the heir of all things. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And through whom He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. That's our Jesus. This is who He is. And now woven through this book are amazing descriptions. Chapter 3, verse 1. Fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since we have a great High Priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, we hold firmly to our faith. And it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in any way, in every way, just as we are. Now, yesterday was the Day of Atonement. 
And when we think of the Day of Atonement on the Jewish calendar, yesterday Jews did not sacrifice animals because they do not have currently a temple where that would be done. They hope to build that temple, to rebuild that temple in Jerusalem. But today they don't have one. But on the Day of Atonement, they remembered the atonement that was made in years past. And the book of Hebrews does a brilliant job laying out the panorama of what it meant for the high priest of the Jews to go into the Holy of Holies through the outer courts into the inner courts past a huge tapestry one day a year to sacrifice animals to shed their blood first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That was the Day of Atonement. But every Jew today, Orthodox Jews, recognize that those animal sacrifices did not forgive sins. They were done to declare that there would be a Messiah who would come, who would take the sins. And the forgiveness that Jews, Orthodox Jews today, hope for is not in those the blood of bulls and goats. They know that they... that never took away sin. They hope in the mercies of God. And they know it's declaring a future sacrifice. But all of us who are messianic know that Jesus was the Lamb of God who was slain, who ended the sacrificial system. The other was the foreshadowing. It was like watching the preview. But Jesus was the full-length film. He's the one that it was all about. And when Jesus came, He was not in a lineage of successive high priests that changed year after year. He was the true, the final. He did not need to go in year after year. He did it once and for all. He didn't take the blood of other animals. And He didn't need to sacrifice anything for His own sins, because He Himself was sinless. When He went to offer sacrifice, He took nothing but Himself. And His own body was the sacrifice. And He did it not just for the Jewish people, but He sacrificed Himself for the sins of all people. Therefore, we have this great High Priest who has finished the sacrificial system, He did it and fully accomplished it once and for all. That's this Jesus. And He not only died, but was raised as the conqueror over all of that and more. And it goes on. Chapter 5, verse 7, During these days Jesus' life on earth He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries. And He was heard because of His reverent submission. Chapter 8, verse 6, But the ministry Jesus has received is superior to theirs as the covenant which He 
is the mediator is superior to the old one, for it's founded on better promises. And then finally we come to chapter 12. Having made our way through chapter 11 with all these others who are now seated in the grandstands of heaven who fix their eyes on Jesus, we come to this exhortation to us. Therefore, since we are surrounded by all those others who we respect, who fix their eyes on Jesus, therefore now we should fix our eyes on Jesus. Woven through the tapestry of Hebrews, perhaps more clearly than any other book in the Bible, is the doctrine of the deity of Christ. That this Jesus was fully man, but more than a man, He was fully God. And I want to give you something here that you may have never thought about, but it's, in, it's essential that all of us understand the deity of Christ. We're living in a day when there is more and more false teaching on the nature of Christ. Uh, we're interacting in a community that is increasingly pluralistic. Um, not only do we have down the street uh, one of the largest Hindu temples in North America. But a few blocks beyond that, they're going to be building one of the largest Muslim mosques in North America. Right down the street. Muslims deny the deity of Christ. It's essential to our faith to know why we believe this. Was it just because we're taught it? Now, watch this. There are four great reasons why we believe in the deity of Christ. And this is so simple, any of us can get this. Number one, He has divine names. Number two, He receives divine honor. Number three, He displays divine attributes or virtues. And... Number four, He performs divine activities. You got that? Simple. Divine names. Hebrews is one of the books of the Bible that uses the name God to refer to Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 8. He is called God. Irrefutably. Of course, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 refer to Him as the exact representation of God's nature. I mean, who is that but God? But in chapter chapter 1, verse 8, it explicitly uses the name God. Even chapter 12, verse 2, when Jesus is called the author and finisher of our faith, any Jew would know that's talking about God. Only God is the author of faith. If you say Jesus is, is the author of faith, any Jew would say, oh, you mean He's God? So there's all kinds of titles that are given to Jesus that clearly identify Him as God. Names. Honors. It says in chapter 1 that every angel worships Jesus. If He was not God, then He ought to tell those angels, don't worship me, worship God. Of course He's God. He receives divine honors. When 
Thomas fell down in front of Jesus after the resurrection appearance to Thomas in the upper room. He said, my Lord and my God, if he was not, Jesus should have corrected him. He received divine honor. Divine attributes. He's called here, um, he's got the attribute of eternal. Any Jew would know if you're eternal, that's God. God is the eternal one. The attribute of being eternal. And there are a host, a host, a host, a host of other attributes given to Jesus. They clearly identify Him as God and doing the works of God. It says that He created the world. Well, who created the world? That's the work of God. It was Jesus. So, let's summarize. We've got four reasons we can say without any misgivings that Jesus is God because He has divine names. He has divine honor, divine attributes, and divine actions. He does the work of God. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He was bruised for our transgressions. The chastisement that brings us peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. Fix your eyes on Jesus. No matter what it is you're going through, don't focus on your problems. Don't focus on yourself. If you do, you will lose faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. We're going to be doing it for all of eternity. It's time we get used to it. Fix your eyes on Jesus. One day every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and the worlds will roar and wail on account of Him. But not us. We who are used to feasting our eyes on Jesus will welcome that moment as the day we've been waiting for. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen.